word mind is actually chitta. Um, sometimes you, people mispronounce it as cheetah, which I always get visions of things bounding across the African plains, um, but it's actually chitta. So, mind is chitta. It's one of many words in Sanskrit and Pali for the mind. Um, but chitta also has the root of heart. It's actually heart and mind. It's not just mind. So the word isn't just mind in Sanskrit and Pali. That has this sense of my of heart as well, and so what my teacher was urging me to do, he was saying, you know, stop thinking with that, stop thinking with just the head, start thinking with this kind of sense of the heart as well, opening ourselves to it. And in many ways, compassion can be seen as an opening of the heart. And I gave you an etymology earlier on in the week, which I want to come back to just very briefly, which is that compassion is an opening onto the other. It's an opening of the heart, which actually, in a sense, is a reorientation of our whole being. Instead of being self-obsessed, self-concerned, we open onto the other and we see the other's pain. That is what it's opening onto. We open and see that other's suffering, their anxiety, their distress, their pain. This led one of the early writers in the 6th century, very famous, I'm going to quote from him in a second, um, a long quote, but somebody called Shantideva. Shantideva wrote this um, work that's become enormously inf influential in the development of Mahayana Buddhism. It's called in Sanskrit the Bodhicharya Avatara, which basically means something like setting forth on the practice of awakening. And in this particular text, when he's discussing patience and anger and all of these kinds of things, he actually comes up with this wonderful phrase, and I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't got a direct quote in front of me, but he says something to the effect of, it makes no sense to talk about my pain, my with a possessive pain, it only makes sense to talk about our pain together because of our interrelationship and the fact that you know, your pain affects me my pain affects you, and so on and so forth. And so this compassion is opening, in a sense, onto our pain. The whole of compassion um, is very, very much seen as one of the principal dynamic forces behind particularly Mahayana Buddhism. I'm not saying it's not present in Theravada Buddhism, it's very present in Theravada Buddhism. But it's particularly emphasized in Mahayana Buddhism on the path of the Bodhisattva. Uh, the Bodhisattva is somebody who basically makes a vow to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings, you know, because the vow is taken in the belief that only actually a Buddha can really ultimately help others. Whether one believes in the idea of the Bodhisattva vow or not, it's a sublime idea, if nothing else, um, to make this movement into selflessness, because that's what it entails, selfless, compassionate action. And throughout the chronicles of all the traditions of Buddhism, there are these tales. Some of you might have come across them. They're called Jataka tales. Theravada Buddhism is full of them. But they're also there and present in the Chinese and the Japanese and, and the Tibetan too. And Jataka tales basically tell the stories of the, the, the Buddha-to-be undergoing countless, countless rebirths. And in these countless, countless rebirths, he is performing acts of selflessness, um, basically compassionate acts. 
So compassionate acts are often referred to as well as skill in means as well. They're the means by which we attain awakening. It's exemplified in the desire to attain Buddhahood. As I say, in a way, anybody who's supposedly committing themselves to this in the traditions is committing themselves not just to one or two rebirths, but countless rebirths again and again and again. And I just want to correct some misunderstanding often that's um, um, often perpetuated about the idea of the Bodhisattva. You often see, you often read in books completely wrongly that the Bodhisattva makes a vow to stay in the world until the last being is liberated. And I always get this picture of two English people at the end of it, you know, going, so one saying, after you, and the other one saying, no, after you. <laughs> Have you ever seen two Englishmen trying to go through a door? <laughs> Basically, what it is. <laughs> you know, so the Bodhisattva is not one who makes a vow to stay in the world, but one who remains in the world simply to perform selfless acts and then to take on another rebirth and to take on another rebirth and to take on another rebirth. And in a way, again, we can bring it back home to this life in the sense that we can always make this movement into, in a sense, giving of ourselves. Compassion is giving of ourselves in many, many, many ways possible, as many ways as we can think of. And sometimes, and again, I'll just refer to that um, kind of little story I gave you the few evenings ago when I said, you know, we're going into a Tibetan temple, you encounter all these images of what's called peaceful and wrathful deities. And remember the wrathful deities, the ones with all the you know, severed heads as a garland and the skull cut brimming with blood and treading on corpses, you know, huge teeth and flames and all the rest of it, are compassion. <laughs> and this is compassion in the sense that gets things done. So compassion is not one of one variety, of one taste. And I think that's worth remembering because when we hear the word compassion, we often think of something very soft and very gentle. And compassion isn't necessarily like that. Compassion is something that gets things done as well. It might have to take the form of gentleness and softness and being quietly spoken and gentle to another person. And in some instances, it might take the it might take the form of actually being wrathful to get something done. In other words, to cease hurt, to decrease suffering, to deal with the problems of the world. Sometimes sitting back having a nice soft attitude doesn't do anything. Um, so compassion is of many, many, many forms. So let's again not get an ideal lodged in our head about what compassion is. Um, teachers, for example, teachers I used to be around, you know, sometimes they'd shout at you, <laughs> try and make you see something. You know, not doing it out of anger, they're doing it out of compassion because you're being really stupid. <laughs> You know, really obtuse at times. And so it's to kind of shake you up, to make you see something. And, and this is compassion as well. Then there is the compassion for one's persecutors, for one's enemies as well, to open up to that form of the other's pain. Because remember, even the enemy, the persecutor, those who are engaged in sometimes in horrific acts, are actually undergoing tremendous pain and suffering. Even if they're not, they're acting out of their own dukkha, which is the dukkha, the, the most pervasive form of dukkha, the dukkha of ignorance, the dukkha of avidya. 
There is actually no more pervasive form than that. We all have it. You know, we all suffer from this one, uh, the dukkha of ignorance. And so therefore the persecutor, the person who's doing the bad act, is doing it out of their, either their own pain or out of their own ignorance. And you know, in other words, it's to be something to have compassion for rather than to go towards revenge or some kind of you know, kind of trying to balance the scales in terms of righteousness and justice and things like that. Sometimes that happens, but in many cases it doesn't. So how are we left feeling about these people? Well, the Buddha is suggesting, as do the many writers within the Buddhist tradition, that that really is generative of a compassionate stance, not of an aggressive, violent stance of seeking for retribution. Um, as the Buddha says quite clearly at the beginning of the Dhammapada, you know, he says, not by hatred is hatred cured, only by love is hatred cured, and that is an ancient law. And he was saying that two and a half thousand years ago, that it was an ancient law. You know, so it is out of that love, out of that compassion, that the healing starts. Compassion is the healing movement. And I want to give you a big quote, because they talk about Karuna. Karuna is the word that gets translated as compassion. In a way, compassion doesn't do justice. Again, compassion is derived from Latin. It speaks Latin in a certain sense. It has connotations of pity within it, um, which I think have to be resisted because this is not pity at all. Um, for those of you are interested, if you haven't noticed it, I put the quote that I gave this morning on the board, um, the one from Tatantuku, the, you know, the contemporary Tibetan teacher, on the board about it, where he emphasizes that compassion is not pity. It's not looking down on another. It's not looking down on another in the gutter and kind of wallowing and thinking, okay, I can perhaps help them by lifting them out of that. It's not that at all. It's that resonance. It's that, in a sense, that trembling along with, that crying out at the pain of the other. It's not this kind of being in a superior position at all. And it's important to remember that. It's nothing about superiority and inferiority and the dispensing of compassion. I often get the feeling sometimes that you know, compassion is like a you know, wrongly understood. It's like this, gosh, I'm going to give you my compassion whether you like it or not. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's something you inflict on the other rather than the, an opening into the other and allowing them into your heart with this sense of trembling. And this long quote, and it's a, sense, it's a set of extracts, really, which I translated a little while ago um, from the Bodhicharya from Sanskrit. And uh, I think it gives you a measure of what, what Shantideva calls Maha Karuna, the great compassion. And a little bit of the enormity of the task of compassion here. Um, and this is actually used as the dedicatory part of the text. It's, it's actually drawn mainly from the dedicatory part, although it's a little bit from chapter 3, which is not about dedication at all. Uh, and I'll just read this, because I think it is very powerful, and I'll pin it up in the notice board this evening for those who want to have a look at it further. I am medicine for the sick and weary. May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to them, them in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. 
May I be their servant to give them all they desire, my body, my pleasure, my merit, now and forever, everywhere. I care nothing for them, I cast them aside to accomplish the aim of all beings. May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway to reach the other side. For those who desire the other shore, a lamp for those who need a lamp, a bed for those who need a bed, a slave for those who need a slave for the sake of all beings. And may I be a wishing gem, an inexhaustible vase, a magical spell, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty, for all beings, and, and, and the elements of earth and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space in many ways, may I be the means of sustenance for the realm of beings in all of space until all have passed into nirvana. And by my merit, may the blind see and the deaf hear, the fearful cease to tremble, the afflicted be consoled, and the weary be made content. May the sick be made whole again, those in bondage freed, and may the weak be strong and loving to each other. And as long as the earth and sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. To do so, I take upon myself the sorrows of the world, and may the world be happy. I think that gives you just a tiny modicum of... Uh, the immensity of the task ahead. But that is the aspiration, that is the aspiration of Mahakaruna, of compassion. The compassion for all beings. And, and obviously it's full of, in a sense, Indian hyperbole. These texts are very you know, full of hyperbole. Yet, one can see that what is being suggested by Shantideva is you know, to be this ultimate source of help to others for whatever they need. That is compassion, this movement towards. It's not this pitying, as I keep emphasizing, it's not. It's not this looking down on. It's this seeing the other's pain and having, at least if nothing else, the desire to wish to alleviate it, to be so moved, to be touched by the other. This is what compassion is really about. And it's this, it's this being touched, which is at the really core of it, which is the reason why, as I say, the bridge from metta to karuna is anukampa in, in the original languages, this sense of empathy, but this crying out at that pain of the other person, the pain that the other experiences, in order to not just kind of wallow in the pain of the other, but an attempt to, to do something for them, to come down, to help. There are many stories, particularly in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, one of the chief deities in the Tibetan tradition, some of you might have come across him, is called Avalokiteshvara, the Lord who looks down. The Lord who looks down here is the Lord who is looking for compassion. And there's a lovely story in the Tibetan tradition which said, when he looked down upon suffering beings, he was so filled with compassion, his head split <laughs> into many parts. And uh, the Buddha Amitabha, who's the Buddha of the Western Heaven, put his head back together again. And now he has nine faces, all facing in different directions, all looking for compassion, all looking for uh, suffering in order to alleviate it by compassion. 
Um, and you see these figures often in Tibetan temples, which are really exemplars of this kind of compassion that we are meant in many ways to also enact ourselves. The Bodhicharya Avatar is a text which is solely really aimed at this Bodhisattva's path. The Bodhisattva, by the way, is not unknown, as you will have gathered in the Theravada tradition, because the whole path of the Buddha from being this unawakened to being the awakened figure is through the path of the Bodhisattva, uh, going through this endless acts of self-sacrifice, diminishment of the ego that goes on with it, goes along with it. So what goes hand in hand with compassion really is the diminishment of the ego, because as I've said many, many times throughout the week so far, if there is you sitting right in the middle of your heart, the great big fat restless ego sitting there in the middle of your heart, there is no room for anybody else. If it's sitting there like a kind of stodgy being, as it sits there lumpen in the middle of your heart, blocking everything else with no space for anything else to enter. Well, to engage in selfless actions, to engage in the, the activities of the Bodhisattva is to diminish that. Its chief vehicle is bodhicitta, something called bodhicitta in, in um, Bodhicitta Avatar. Bodhicitta is the arising of the mind which is bent on awakening for the sake of other beings. And that marked a change from the kind of Theravada understanding, which was awakening for oneself. And this was not just awakening for oneself, but awakening for the sake of others. And it doesn't really represent a major change in Buddhist doctrine at all, as many like to make out, particularly those who are really kind of stuck within their own traditions. It really just marks a change of emphasis, that's all. Really allowing the other much more prominence than it initially had, perhaps, in the doctrines of the non-Mahayana paths. I hesitate to use the word Hinayana. Some of you might have come across this term, um, perhaps reading more traditional texts, that, um, particularly from Mahayana's bias. Hinayana is a term I would avoid like the plague. It's an awful term. It means not just lesser vehicle, as it's often fudged in translation. It means inferior vehicle. <laughs> So it's not a term I would use at all. Really, it's the difference between Mahayana and non-Mahayana traditions. The Mahayana just has this emphasis on awakening for the sake of the other, not for the sake of oneself. That is all. That's the only major difference between the two traditions as they grow up. So compassion, really, to try and draw this to a close. The compassion is even the compassion for the enemy, even the compassion for those that do you harm. Just as the Dalai Lama, for example, you know, taking point out of you know, somebody who has, whose country and culture certainly has suffered enormous tragedy, the Dalai Lama always says his greatest teachers are the Chinese. You know, those are his greatest teachers. Those are you can learn the most from. You know? In other words, because it's a test of his compassion. It's a test of his patience to see how he can hold the Chinese while still deploring what they do not to hate the Chinese not to hate a nation, not to hate an individual. And I think we can all learn from that because it's so easy to move from the feeling of persecution, somebody doing me harm, into, even if not hate, into dislike and all of the kind of stuff that goes with that. 
it's so easy to make that move. And what the Dalai Lama is suggesting is that we actually have our truest teachers, not in those who are our friends and those who are supporting us, not in the idea of the Kalyana Mitra, which is the person who is your spiritual friend, but actually your greatest spiritual friend, in a way, is your enemy. Those that do you harm, because they really test you. They really test whether you do have compassion at all. In other words, to still deplore what they do, but still have a sense of suffering humanity behind that action. And that takes, in a sense, Mahakaruna. That takes great compassion to do that. So that's a little bit about compassion this evening. Um, it's, it's such an important area. Remember I said the other night that it takes two wings for the bird to fly. It takes the wing of understanding or wisdom, and it takes the wing of compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, because it's so stressed so much, um, there are symbols which are used, some of you might know them if you've ever come in, in Tibetan Buddhist circles, it's usually a symbol of the bell and the symbol of the Vajra. The Vajra is the kind of diamond which cuts through everything. The diamond is, is kind of obviously a very hard substance which will strike through anything and the Vajra represents, this is a kind of symbol out of Indian, um, out of Indian symbology basically the Tibetans use, which represents this diamond, this adamantine quality which can cut through anything. And the bell, which is used often in the ceremonies, and you'll see these in long Tibetan ceremonies, represents compassion. And the bell is the sounding of compassion. Um, these are gendered as well. Wisdom or understanding is feminine, while compassion is masculine. Strange. It's often the way, opposite way around. We tend to think of you know, the feminine being the caring, compassionate side, and the male being wisdom, and it's kind of complete reversal in Tibetan thought, and particularly in late Indian thought. And so these two symbols, when they are actually present, are never to be separated. Actually, um, it's almost considered to be something like an almost heinous crime in Tibetan circles if you separate the bell and the vajra and you take them apart, because you know, you're separating wisdom and compassion here. You're taking them apart. And remember that phrase I gave you the other night, that wisdom without compassion is cold. Compassion without wisdom is sloppy. <laughs> That's a Tibetan phrase about it. You know, and keeping them together keeps them, in other words, doing their jobs properly. You, know, you need the eye of understanding, much better word than wisdom, the eye of insight in order to guide compassion, to know what form the compassion should take. Yeah. Not easy. I keep saying that phrase throughout the week. You probably hate me for it by now. You know, not easy to actually guide one's understanding, guide one's compassion through understanding, understanding of the situation, opening in it, letting what need be manifest, rather than having a preconceived idea about what I'm going to apply which is actually usually what happens. We come to situations often with preconceptions about what we're going to do. All of those times when we are trying to be compassionate to the other who might be pouring out their suffering to you and you're trying to solve their problems before you've even, they've even told you what they are. <laughs> you know, because you haven't really opened and listened sufficiently enough before you're trying to solve the problem. That, in a sense, is not compassion. That's still you there. You at the heart of it. 
So much of this is becoming, the space of compassion is also becoming a cleared space, becoming a clearing for the other to manifest themselves. Without this clearing, there is still you sitting there, right in the heart of it. And you generally come wrapped in neuroses <laughs> and also preconceptions and conditioning and all sorts of things that you bring to a situation. So the ideal, I'm not saying this is necessarily the actuality for most of us in our daily life, the ideal is to become this cleared space in which the other can manifest. And then what is brought forth happens spontaneously. In other words, compassion, and the real compassion, is spontaneous. It's not contrived. If you are it, then you don't think about it. And think about this as well. I mean, I'm going to give you a silly example. I haven't given you a silly example yet tonight. Uh, I'm usually full of them. Um, here's a silly example. I do something to somebody and I go, hmm, that was compassionate. <laughs> as you can see, kind of somehow, even by putting it in that silly way, you can see it isn't compassionate. Because I've suddenly had compassion as an object, which I'm dispensing to the other. Compassion is, in a sense, real compassion is spontaneous. It arises because it is a responsiveness to the situation. And actually, in some traditions, the word karuna, um, and in all its various translations into the other languages, usually gets translated as responsiveness. You know? And so I think, actually, personally, it's a better word than compassion. It's the ability to respond. It's also translated as responsibility. You know, the ability to respond to the other. So compassion really is about true responsiveness to the other in their pain. And when we look around the world, I mean, can't you think, I mean, I can't think of another virtue that is more needed in this world than the two that we've been talking about over this week so far. Loving kindness and compassion. But bearing in mind that neither have to always take a soft, soft approach. That compassion itself is this dynamic thing as well as being something gentle. And the responsiveness as to whether it's gentle or whether it's dynamic is depending on the situation. What needs to be done, needs to be done. You know? And it depends on how much we open to that situation as to whether the correct response is made, the appropriate response. So it's, in other words, not coming with a mind filled, although I've probably been doing this to you already tonight, which is filled with ideas of exactly what compassion is. Because in a way it goes above any categorization other than what I would call the responsiveness to the pain of the other. And perhaps that's probably the best categorization of all. The responsiveness to the enemy's pain, to the friend's pain, to the neutral person's pain, to the beloved friend, and so on and so forth. You know, it's that responsiveness, how we deal with it, how we dispense it in this world, which is true compassion or false compassion. It becomes false compassion when there's the self rooted right in the middle of it. Now, in our working towards the genuine compassionate response, we might have to go through the behavior again. Yeah. We might have to behave compassionately in order to find out what the feelings are which are associated with it. Um, 
Sometimes it's not simply enough to wait for these authentic feelings to arise because you know, we could wait forever for the authentic feelings to arise. Um, it's better to engage, albeit even with the self involved, in compassionate behavior, gentle behavior, kind behavior, even if those feelings are not absolutely paramount. I'm not overwhelmed and brimming with compassion at this moment in time. Um, one particular Tibetan teacher, when confronted by this, by a student who said to him, you know, you keep talking about compassion and compassion and compassion. I don't feel compassionate. And the teacher said to him with a kind of quizzical look on his face, he said, feel compassionate? What's that got to do with it? Just behave compassionately. <laughs> you know? In the early stages, that is what we, all we need to do is behave compassionately. And really, if nothing else that you take away from this week, then perhaps a lot of it is often about our behaviour in this world. Hopefully we can now begin at least to see the movement in, into a connectedness with others, a responsiveness with others, but it's going to take a while to manifest. It's going to take quite a long while to manifest. That opening that we need needs also to be followed by that clearing, or the two actually really have to occur, occur together the clearing and the clearing of self away from this. Now I said I was going to quote, and I'm going to quote something non-Buddhist, uh, again Rilke, because I think he really does speak to us in many of these. He's probably one of the most spiritual of the Western poets, I think. Not that there are others who are not. It's just that his primary concerns are often with our spiritual malaise, our life. And he's talking very much in this poem about something I've already mentioned, which is basically how anything that we see that arises even in our meditation, and I've been kind of pushing this through during the week, anything that arises is not to be treated as an enemy. The things that we see around us flourish in love. You can see this even with somebody, somebody you really do care for. Children flourish in love flowers and all of the plants that you grow, if you really care for them, they flourish, they flower, they bloom, they grow. You know, we too flourish under the gaze of another, don't we? In the loving gaze of the other we flourish. And part actually of the human thing, and I hear it again and again um, with people in distress, I'm simply not seen. Is there ever a phrase that's occurred to you, you know, in our you know, in our daily lives, the feeling of not being seen, this feeling of not being heard. Well, that feeling of not being heard is to be cut off from that vital source of care and love and compassion and everything like that. And what we're attempting to do is open ourselves in a way that we can move into that, that we can really see the other, we can really hear the other. To really hear, all too often I think we probably elevate the, the, the visual over the other senses. Yet we can say we were touched by the other, we heard them, you know, and also see them <coughs> as well. These are very powerful metaphors in a way, um, but they're not just metaphors. You know, the, the touch of somebody, if they touch you, you know, and it feels a gentle touch, you know it. You, know, you feel, in a sense, seen. And I'm using, mixing the metaphors here. You know, when somebody gently does 
touch you in some way, you are there for them, known, even albeit for a brief second in time. And in that moment, you can flourish. So equally so, if we have the gaze which allows the other in, the gaze of compassion, the gaze of kindness, the gaze of love, then the other two can flourish under that gaze because they are seen. This is the very human sense of you know, our seeing and being seen together. We do it all the time. We can, <laughs> we can make visual contact with another but not see. We can hear but not listen. All of these things. Um, we can be touched but not be touched by it. So it's in a way what I'm saying to you is this movement into compassion is the movement into sensitization, into becoming sensitive. And I think Rilke makes this point in his poem. I, and, um, perhaps we might be able to talk about it a little bit when we come to the discussion point. The, 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 po the poem's called Turning Point, or Wendung in German. For a long time he attained it in looking. Stars would fall to their knees beneath his compelling vision, or as he looked on, kneeling, his urgency's fragrance tired out a god until it smiled at him in his sleep. Towers he would gaze at so that they were terrified, building them up again suddenly in an instant. But how often the landscape, overburdened by day, came to rest in his silent awareness at nightfall. Animals trusted him, stepped into his open look, grazing, and the imprisoned lions stared in as if into an incomprehensible freedom. Birds, as it felt them, flew headlong through it, and flowers, as enormous as they are to children, gazed back into it, on and on. And then there was the rumour. There was someone who knew how to look, stirred those creatures, the less visible creatures, looking how long, for how long now, deeply deprived, beseeching into the depths of his glance. When he, whose vocation was waiting, sat far from home, the hotels distracted, unnoticed bedroomed, moody around him, and in the avoided mirror once more the room, and later from the tormenting bed once more, then in the air the voices discussed beyond comprehension, his heart, which could still be felt, debated what through the painfully buried body could somehow still be felt, his heart, debated and passed their judgment, it still did not have love. For there is a boundary to looking, and the world that is looked at so deeply needs and wants to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done now. Go do heart work on all the images that are imprisoned within you, for you overpowered them, but even now you don't know them. In a man, learn to look on your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. I think you can see what Rilke is driving at in that, this idea that we learn to look. And I think this is very, a very powerful message, actually, for those of us, perhaps, who are engaged in doing something like vipassana meditation, because we can see it simply as noting, 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 seeing, 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 all the phrases that we can use, 
But do we love what we see? Does it flourish? Do we flourish in our own gaze? Do others flourish in the gaze? Do when we look in the world, when we look at the world, do we look at it with love? Do we look at it with compassion? Or do we look at it with a heart devoid of that love that Rilke is talking about in that poem? So these become questions. There's no answers there. They become questions, I think, for us. Um, questions that only you and I, in our own individual practice, can answer. And perhaps making that movement into questioning the ways that we look, the ways that we feel, the ways that we hear. Do we hear with love? Do we taste with love? Do we touch? And do we see with love? And to hear love, also hear compassion and empathy and all of the things we've been talking about this week. Because those are what are so important um, for us and others to flourish in the world. Because, remember, and I joked about it earlier in the week, some of you might remember, I said that people outside the world in which we have to live in, the world which is surrounded with people, people are not just there to irritate you. <laughs> yeah. They're not just there to irritate you, they are there in the world, they are suffering, just like you and I. Obviously in their own individual pain, and in their own individual distress, now that own individual pain and distress, people will hit out even the closest around you, those you are perhaps classed as loved ones, will hit out at you from time to time, out of their pain, out of their distress. Patience is what's required, not anger. Patience, which gives rise to compassion. Patience is seen particularly in the Bodhicharya Avatara as the prerequisite for the development of compassion. Again, a funny story. We can do patient practice. There's lots of stuff to go around patient's practice, but um, there's a story again in the Tibetan tradition. The Tibetan tradition is full of little stories. They love telling little stories about these things. Um, but it was a hermit who was uh, secluded in the Himalaya doing patient's practice, day in, day out, doing patient's practice. And a nomad came wandering past his door and spied him in the cave and came in and sat down with him and the hermit broke out of his, out of his practice and offered him Tibetan tea, <laughs> which is not the greatest thing in the world, but never mind. <laughs> um, offered him Tibetan tea, which is this particular mix um, of salt and butter and tea. <laughs> and the nomad drank it and chatted with the, with the hermit. And as he was going, he said to the hermit, and what practice are you, what practice are you doing? He said, I'm doing patience practice. And as he was walking away, he turned and looked back at the hermit who was standing at the, the door of the cave and, and said, um, by the way, go to hell. <laughs> and the hermit said, what? What did you say? <laughs> And the nomad just said to him, I thought you were doing patience practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how easy we can lose it. <laughs> so these stories are kind of just little stories to make you aware just how actually, as I say, how easily we can lose it, how easily we can lose patience. That patience is the, is the wonderful antidote to anger to the anger and the resentment that often arise with being with others, 
Yeah, and often what causes us anger and resentment actually is just people getting on with their lives. You know, just doing what they're doing, just trying to accomplish their lives. And they bump up against us. Sometimes very unmindfully, but you know, we're pretty unmindful most of the time as we drift through our world. Um, and we probably unwittingly cause others pain through our lack of mindfulness. And so really what I'm saying, kind of trying to bring this to conclusion this evening, and I'm not going to get onto the seven treasures, never mind, another time. <laughs> um, the thing I'm really trying to get through to is, is that the, really that this movement into compassion and kindness and everything else is not an optional extra. It's not I shall do my Vipassana practice and I shall do my Samatha practice, and if I've got time I'll do a bit of metta. It's not an optional extra, it's an absolute necessity. Even within your Samatha practice, for example, and hopefully this message has been getting through because I've been using it almost as a mantric phrase as we've been going through the week, treat your mind gently, bring yourself gently back to whatever the object is. Welcome the thoughts as friends, not as enemies. So that we learn to treat our minds in a way which has metta, even if metta isn't being practiced directly as a primary you know, meditative practice here. That the metta is present within the vipassana, it's there present within the samatha practice. Because you learn to treat your mind with respect. You learn to not abuse it, as we often do. Not to brutalize it at its worst as we beat ourselves up for all kinds of indiscretions of the past, not being good enough as we sit here meditating because I can't stay with the object, or whatever it is. Um, and this whole meditative procedure becomes yet another source of pain <laughs> for us, rather than a source of movement towards awakening, it becomes yet something else um, we can criticize and chastise ourselves about as simply not being good enough to do. When we make that movement into this kindness and compassion towards our own minds, we then automatically, I think, step into making a movement between to being kind and compassionate to others. It is impossible for us to do it, to do it with any genuineness if we can't feel it towards ourselves. In fact, the opposite is true. If we brutalize ourselves, we will brutalize the other. There is no doubt about that. And we'll do it sometimes in the name of something called truth. I've often seen this, I've seen it so often, I, almost, I kind of make a joke out of it now, but I've seen it so often when people will say something like, I'm only telling you what I would tell myself. <laughs> you know? In other words, I'm only brutalizing you because I beat myself up constantly you know, about things. And so we do it so easily to the other because we do it so easily to ourselves. Yet if we can actually cease to do that, if we can start to treat ourselves respectfully, if we can start to treat ourselves with metta, we can start to treat ourselves with karuna, then perhaps we can genuinely move out towards the other and it not be that way. I'm going to finish on two quotes. Um, two quotes, one by a poet and one by the Buddha. And the Buddha is obviously the appropriate place to finish. Um, but again, these are about our stilling of the mind, our being able to be for others, 
um, in a way that isn't agitated, that isn't fragmented, that can be open and allow the other in. But I think I'll let the poem and the quote by the Buddha say it all. The first quote is by W.B. Yeats, um, some of you might know in the Irish poet. He says, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live just for a brief moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. It's a beautiful quote. And this is the Buddha to finish off on. And it echoes what Yeats is saying many, many, many centuries after. Develop a mind that is vast like water, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can simply appear and disappear, without conflict, without struggle, and without harm. Rest in your mind like vast water. And that vast water is the water of love and compassion. Okay, I'll finish off there. Yes. I just want to know what the Yeats poem was. Pardon? What is the Yeats poem? Um, I can't remember. It's actually out of his letters. It's not out of his poems. It's out of his letters. And I think, I forget who he was writing to. He was writing to another poet. I think it might have been Laura Riding that he was writing to at the time. There was another poet. I'll find out definitely, and I'll pin it on the notice board for you. I've got, I've got it upstairs. I have a question. Um, the Brahma Viharas, they, uh, there's this example of the mother that takes care of a child, mm -hmm. but you never used it. No. You don't like it? No, it's not a question I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very powerful example. <laughs> Helps me a lot. Yeah, I think it's a very powerful okay. example. I haven't, I haven't used it this time. I d often do use it. Oh, okay. I mean, but okay, I just wanted to. Yeah. But just for those who are not familiar with this, and I kind of extend it for those who are not familiar with this, that the Buddha often uses, and particularly in the, in the Metta Sutta, which I actually did read to you, which actually has that that's right, that's powerful right. example. And he says, you know, that our, our Metta should be like the, the love of a mother for her only child here. And that's the way our Metta should be. You know, we care not out of really any, anything other than this deep, deep affection for the other. And that really becomes the metta for, for caring. And it's actually exemplified through the Buddhist, it's actually amplified, I should say, through the Buddhist tradition. Um, <laughs> in the Tibetan tradition, actually it's drawn from Indian, but in the Tibetan tradition they have this particular meditation which is actually seeing all beings as being your mother, as caring for you. And uh, the Dalai Lama, when he first came to the West, used to use this a lot, this particular meditation, uh, until he cottoned on to the idea that actually <laughs> Westerners didn't have exactly the same relationships with their mothers that Tibetans did. <laughs> so, so now when he teaches it, he says, to see all beings as if they were your friend. <laughs> You know, it's this idea that you've had countless beings looking after you. What I was actually referring to last night when I was talking about, you know, we're not independent. We're completely dependent on the care and the kindness of others for our living. You know, human others and non-human others. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. You know, they care for us. 
in a way that most of the time we don't have gratitude for. Yeah. And so that, that's a very powerful example, but as I say, it has connotations sometimes in the West which it doesn't have in India and Tibet. Patience practice, well, the, most, the primary patience practice is learning to see anger and anger arising and to deal with it and to, to sit with it. That's the primary patience practice. I'll perhaps talk about these a bit tomorrow if you're really interested in them because we'll have more time then tomorrow morning just to explore a few other issues that we haven't touched on so much and perhaps talk a little bit about some of the practices that go. But the main one is actually seeing the arising of anger, not expressing it, not repressing it, but seeing it and being with it. And that's the main patience practice, is to, to, to dwell with it without fostering it, without pumping it up, making it worse, uh, and without obviously expressing it, because this is very detrimental. Um, and, and patience, as you heard me say earlier on, is, is this direct antidote to anger. But there are quite a number of them, and I'll perhaps touch on a few in the morning. So remind me if I don't do it. Yeah, the anger can be turned internally and inwards as opposed to outwards sometimes. And, and this patient practice, a bit like all the other practices, is really is to fully recognize the anger and, in a sense, allow it to go. That is the patience. That is the patience which views it. Equanimity is a patience practice too. The whole practice of equanimity is a patience practice. You know, seeing others in this way that, you know, that one isn't constantly irritated by the other. And you can hold them in a way which allows them to be as they are without you getting exasperated, irritated and angry all the time. Which actually, if you think about it, I mean, I've joked about it, but it's actually quite a, a large proportion of our behaviour as we move through the world. Even if we never express it, to the other, we're irritated and exasperated and angry <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. And so it is such an important practice. But I'll, I'll give you a few examples in the morning, yeah. in, in our final two-hour session. <laughs> Simultaneously. <laughs> Depends on what the intention is. <laughs> Remember, intention is everything in Buddhist practice. If the intention is to hurt, then it's not appropriate. But it can be appropriate, surely, to sometimes express an objection yes. to something yes. which is harming you or yes. memorize somebody else. But then, in a sense, it doesn't really become anger in the way that the Buddha talks about anger. I mean, the Buddha makes it very... <laughs> it's so funny, actually. I, mean, I ought to say this as a preamble to this comment I'm going to make. There's nothing that usually makes people more angry than the comment I'm about to make, which the Buddha says, which is, anger is never justified. <laughs> and it really usually winds people up <laughs> say this. Is that he says that the anger is never justified. What he's actually saying is the anger with the motivation to hurt the other is never justified. And actually, a lot of anger is of that form. A lot of the anger we feel is, is the desire to get back at the other, 
you know, somebody's hurt me and so I'll be angry with them. Actually, the motivation, even if I don't express them, is actually to want to hurt them in some way or another. However, there are forms where we might shout at somebody. You know, I gave you an example earlier on, which is you know, one of my teachers used to shout at me quite regularly. <laughs> and uh, you know, to kind of get, try and wake me up. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't the desire behind that, although it seemed to be anger. It wasn't anger. It was, it was the desire behind that, or the intention behind that, was actually compassion, or the desire to, to, to motivate me to, to do something else. Um, the way you can speak to a child in an angry tone, perhaps, you know, to stop it from hurting itself. That's not anger. Again, it's compassion. You know? So again, it's, it depends on the quality of the intention. If the quality of the, in, if the intention is to hurt, then the Buddha is saying it's never justified. If the, quali- if the intention is to do something else, like to save somebody from harm, to express a, a very well-intentioned judgment about somebody doing something wrong, for example, in a way, although it might be said in an angry voice, an angry tone, it's not anger. Not in that way. Yeah. They have these kind of very big definitions, actually, in psychology, in the psychological material in the Buddhist thought. And one of the things about anger is anger is always coming with that intention, the intention to hurt. So it might be looked at like angry behavior, like the wrathful deities. They look very wrathful and very angry, uh, but they're not. They're really cuddly. <laughs> 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 no, but more, more seriously, they're, 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 the Russell Dare is really expressing an anger, in a sense, to get something done, to be compassionate, to work on you, all these sorts of things. It's not anger as per anger per se. It's not anger in that sense. Sorry, Tony. Uh, in wishing and sending compassion to larger groups like all beings, like all people who are suffering. Mm. It's, that's just, it's much harder uh, for me. There are many more obstacles than to individuals, even individuals that I don't know, Mm. or smaller groups like the people in this room. And I am looking at what makes it so hard. And what makes it so hard is discouragement and despair about the immensity of suffering mm. and feeling that no matter what I do it, it's useless it would be useless uh, I guess the, the word despair um, uh, taking a group like say, people with AIDS and mm. wishing them health there's a despair in that which seems to block the wish for health Well, I'm going to come back, really, to that quote I gave this morning, which is the compassion to not be overwhelmed by it. In a sense, what you're saying is the overwhelming amount of suffering there is. Um, What Tartantoku is really indicating, I think, is, or trying to express, is the idea that, in a way, although there is this immensity of suffering, it's an immense ocean, an immense ocean, we don't have to be overwhelmed by it because we can orient it we can orient our mind in a way which is flooding the world with compassion, even if I can't do something about it. Even if I'm, in a sense, helpless. And there's a lot of things we will be helpless about. But why, 
Why should that make us ultimately despair? Well, I think probably because often we have this feeling of impotence. Um, and that's really the source of our despair, isn't it? Is the feeling of impotence of not being able to do something. But in a way, the generating of compassion in, in this sense is also a doing. Now, if we can do something practically, all to the good, you know, all to the good, we can move into the space of doing the practical helping and caring as, as well as the, the having of the good thought. But the having of the good thought is also, in a way, a doing something about it is a way of doing, in, in a way, not an inactivity, it's not a passivity. It's, in a sense, an antidote to that despair, if really entered into. Yeah, and so we are, in a sense, moving beyond the impotence, because we are doing something, we're, we're generating our mind, I'm really caring for others, even if I can't physically care for them and do something for them. And it might be such things like the example you get, it might be that you have to use a different phrase. You know, to get into that feeling for those immense numbers of people that are suffering from AIDS or whatever the epidemic is, whatever the problem is with them. But let, let us not, I mean, I think this is, this is, I think the crux of it really is, is not to see that this generation of compassion is simply a passivity. It isn't. It's not a passivity. It's an activity of mind. It's an orienting of mind which helps to overcome some of that despair and overcome some of that in sense of impotence that we have. It's not kind of trying to make the world rosy just by saying, oh, I'm looking at simply through these kind of rose-tinted glasses. It's actually seeing the world as it is, but still feeling the compassion, which isn't a compassion tinged with despair behind it. I don't know if that makes sense. It's a kind of response, really, rather than an answer to it. Because I think the tendency is to see a lot of meditative practice, and particularly these meta-type compassion practices, as simply being passivity. And they're not. They're activity. They're incredibly active. If you're doing them properly, they're incredibly active. They're not passive. I'm not just sitting here. This is why they're cultivation and not meditation. You're cultivating a mind which can hold all of that suffering without being overwhelmed by it and dropping in despair. And the reason you can do that is because of this great sense of compassion for the other. Let me... Yeah. Yes, Grace. Yeah. Has an Sorry, I didn't hear the first bit. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will be. I, I actually haven't read her book. Um, what practices can you engage in when you're feeling kind of threatened or fearful and so on? Dare I say it? <laughs> I thought you'd done it. I mean, really, that is it. I mean, you're coming again into a relationship of metta towards the other. Yeah. If you feel fearful of the other, yeah. if you feel threatened. It is another, fear is aversion. Fear is aversion. That's exactly what it is. Um, for those of you not aware of this, all, all the psychological states in Buddhist thought have their roots in the three poisons or the three fires. You know, what I called at the beginning of the week the unholy trinity. You know, greed, aversion and delusion. 
And so when we trace, for example, species of desire and lust and everything else, obviously they're related to greed. And when we trace anything through from irritation to fear, they're all related back to aversion. So it's a species of aversion. And what is the practice for dealing with aversion? Well, the practice for dealing with aversion is, dare I say it, metta and compassion. And would it be predominantly for the other person or what by yourself in that? It can be for both. It can be for both. It can be, in a sense, looking at the aversion, <coughs> the fear that you have, which is, as I say, aversion, and can be holding that in a way which allows it to be into a, in a, in a space of metta but it can also particularly direct it at the other. Yeah. I mean, we can all be fearful. We can be fearful from the politicians downwards of all sorts of things and what they might do. Yeah. And we've got to hold that. In fact, I mean, often, we haven't done it because I haven't had time um, today, and really this was just a taste of compassion. The week has really been concentrated on kindness, as you know, and today was just a taste of the compassion practice. But often, you can go through exactly the same categories. Yeah. If we had another week, would go through exactly the same categories with the compassion practice dealing with it. It's interesting when people come to the enemy, those they are fearful of, those they dislike, and that. How many politicians arise <laughs> in that category <laughs> as to what they might do <laughs> to us? But obviously, more directly, it might be somebody who you're fearful of in ordinary life. And again, the way to hold it is in the space of metta. It's in the space of matter because that is the antidote to that kind of fear. And also, could you put the name of the uh, Wilker poem on the board as well? The name of it, yeah. yeah. And I write it, write it out later on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we've got two. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, great. This morning, in, I mean, I felt a bit irritated when the focus was yet again changed. Uh, while the concept of impermanence is actually very easy to grasp, it felt a bit like you were in a working public service, a government target. It just got us and it's changed again. <laughs> uh, but the, the issue of habit and discipline. Where are they in meditation? Because without some degree of habit or discipline to, to practice and... I think discipline is different to habit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, for example, actually the translation of the term vinya, which is you know, the, one of the parts of the Pali Canon, the vinya. Vinya is discipline. Um, but as you heard me say, the Buddha often chastises his monks for not breaking it. Yeah. So in other words, discipline is something which forms, if you like, a holding space. Um, one of, actually, I'll give you an example. One of, one of my teachers, when I was studying in classical music, used to say, particularly about improvisation, he said the only freedom was within discipline. And actually having this holding space of discipline, the rules that you had, um, which hopefully you didn't transgress, which allowed you all the freedom within that space in which to do things. Now, it doesn't mean that you can never contravene the discipline. You can break it, and sometimes it's necessary to do that. And I was joking to you last night, you might have the discipline of doing meditation. Your friend phones up and says, I'm in a terribly distressed state, and I say, I can't do it because I've got to do my meditation. <laughs> that's a habit. And that's not actually discipline. The discipline is there as a training rule, nothing else. 
It's something, in other words, to keep you focused, to keep you guided through the world. So the precepts, they're all training rules. That's how they always describe, you know, undertake the rule of training. All of the 227 Theravadan, you know, rules of discipline are all rules of training. It doesn't mean, apart from, actually there's four in, in the, um, the monks' rules, which are completely inviolable. They'll get, actually get you thrown out of the order. Um, but apart from those, all the others, in a sense, are subject to transgression and can be transgressed at certain times according to the situation, according to where you find yourself in. And so uh, the reason I'd say is the difference between discipline and habit is discipline is there to guide you, to hold you, the space in which to do things. To set yourself to discipline of doing meditation every day is a very good discipline, but when it becomes a habit, it becomes something unbreakable. That's the thing about habit, it becomes an addiction. I cannot function unless I've done my meditation. <laughs> you know, a bit like, I can't function unless I've had a drink. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's almost the equivalence, isn't it? Yeah. And that's when it's become a habit. And we have to watch out for that. We have to very severely watch out for that. That it doesn't drop into being just yet another habit. It's become a spiritual habit. Um, Chögyam Trungpa is very good on this stuff in, in a little book called um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism yeah, uh, on this because the way that we can turn even spirituality into yet another materialistic thing here uh, and then it becomes habitual it becomes a habit has no flexibility it's rigid discipline is much less rigid actually you know, I used to see all the time monks breaking rules in the monasteries you know because of situations they found themselves in and that. Not for the sheer hell of it, but because they had to mould their lives according to what was. You know, as they moved through you know, interacting with Indian society, for example, or Sri Lankan society. Um, and so the, the thing about discipline, as I say, it's that holding space. I don't know if that answers it for you, but I think there's a big difference between the two of them. But I think we do have to be, be very much on our guard that our practice doesn't become yet another mere habit. Yeah. I really do. I think that's a very big danger for us. Very good. Mm, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> You've answered it. You've answered it in my mind. Okay. <laughs> How about that? I did it without even speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Any other more questions or comments? We have a tiny bit more time left. If you want. Yeah. Oh, two. Okay. Sophie, yeah. Protecting yourself if uh, somebody wishes you hard because you're talking about being fearful. Yeah. But also, if you're in a situation where somebody wants to hurt you, yeah. Um, how, I mean, how do you react? <laughs> I, th I think the wisdom or the insight is get as quickly out of the situation <laughs> as possible. <laughs> you know, I mean, to be quite honest, I mean, there is a lot of real common sense in this, uh, and the Buddha isn't against common sense. You know, when, you've, when faced in situations of danger, um, in ancient India, you're often faced in situations of danger. For example, living in the jungles and going through wild places and things like that, you try to protect yourself as much as was humanly possible. You try to remove yourself from sources of danger as much as is possible. So it's really quite commonsensical. If you're faced with those kind of really physical, practical dangers, then try and remove yourself from them as quickly as you can. You know, if I see the bus bearing down on me, if I'm standing in the road, 
I, I, I don't go meta, meta, meta. <laughs> <laughs> Bloop. <laughs> you know, it's really as simple as that. Well, that's the gesture of fearlessness. That's the gesture of fearlessness. I have no fear of this. You know, again, it does not mean removing yourself from a situation of danger, somebody who's lunging at you with a knife. Um, but it means, in a sense, even though I'm avoiding myself, I'm not hyped up with fear at all. And it's saying that the Buddha has no fear about these things. In fact, one of the greatest gifts um, actually in terms of generosity, is the gift of fearlessness to another. Think about that in terms of our society. That's the very opposite of actually what our society is doing. Most of our society is trying to make as fearful as possible. Yeah. Um, trying to make us worried. The media stirs us up, makes us fearful. You know, all the kind of government stuff fears, stirs us up and makes us fearful. Um, it's no accident, I think, that Britain invented insurance. <laughs> you know, insurance was a British invention. <laughs> um, you know, because you might be fearful that you would lose your goods. You know, and it's kind of, we're always hyped up into that state of fearless, fearfulness. And so the greatest gift we can give to somebody is reassurance. Creating a sense of less fear, of fearlessness ultimately. So it's one of the great gifts that we can give to others, is that gift of fearlessness. Um, to move through danger without fear. It sounds odd, doesn't it? Um, but that is it. The world is a precarious place. There is no doubt about it. But fear is all, nearly always projection about what might happen. Most of our fears are you know, of that sort. I mean, even in terms of our basic, probably, biological mechanisms, we have fight and flight mechanisms. You know, to get us out of danger situations. So you can actually have danger, but not be fearful. And interestingly, you hear this in reports sometimes, particularly in things like wartime and that, you know, when somebody is asked why did they go and do X courageous act when they rescued somebody under enemy fire or pulled somebody out of the burning building or things like that, they don't say anything other than, well, I just did it. There seemed to be no fear involved in that at all, uh, in those sort of actions. It's seeing what needs to be done and doing it. And again, that lack of fearlessness actually is compassion, where you go out and, and help another. Where we're fearful, we probably won't do anything at all. Um, so it's stepping into that realm of fearlessness, but it takes time. It takes time, because the ego has to diminish. Because where the ego is, there is always fear. And where there's projection into the future, there is always fear. Um, actually, fear can't exist when we're actually in the now at all. It can't exist. When we're fully grounded in the now of this moment, there is no room for it. But we're not. We're usually projecting into the future, and so fear is always possible for us. So. I think there's kind of a number of issues there, which is, which is the fear of the immediate danger will remove yourself from it, the way of moving through even danger without fear, but not recklessness, foolhardiness. You know, that's again something we, you know, we tend to say, oh, they're completely fearless, and actually might be just silly. 
moving through dangerous places and things like that. So there's a lot of common sense involved in it too. But there's particularly this coming into the now, which is a now which doesn't have fear as its main object. Big one, given our societies. <laughs> it's a big, big one. They're all out there to make you fearful. And I don't mean that in a paranoid sense. It's just the rhetoric of our age, you know, the war on terror and all this sort of stuff, is, is a rhetoric of creating fear within us. The more we become fearful, the more we close down, the more we inhibit what we do. You know, when we become extremely fearful, as often happens, as I think I indicated probably right at the beginning of the week, when we become really fearful, um, in old age, for example, then we don't go out the house because we're so fearful. And we can get to that stage almost now. <laughs> you know? And I don't mean necessarily not literally physically stepping out the house, but we don't step out the house of our habits because <laughs> that's our housing as well. That's where we're housed within, our whole set of habits. So fear is an enormous issue. Sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was a question related to the previous one <clears throat> to do with habit and <clears throat> spiritual materialism. I just wondered if you could comment on the kind of guidance that you should just do your practice and not look for any kind of results at all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in, it's a very it's a difficult one because I think initially when we come into the practice, I mean I'm sure everybody came. I certainly did. I know when I began thirty odd years ago, I started started practicing with the idea I wanted to get somewhere. And it's a bit, I always see it a bit like the person who goes who goes into something like the martial arts. They go into the martial arts often with the desire to be able to kind of beat people up. <laughs> and I don't mean that for everybody, obviously, but I mean, a lot of people do this, and the more and more they get into it, the less and less it becomes the purpose of doing it, the more and more it drops away. And I almost feel that's a bit like the goals that we set ourselves in meditative practice, um, that the more we engage in it, the more we relax into what we're doing, and the less the goals become important. And in fact, a lot of it, if there is progress, and I know that's one of the big words that we always use in the West, progress. If there is progress and it really, really is progress, sometimes you don't even notice it. Others might notice it and they might reflect it back to you. But in many ways you won't notice it yourself because you embody it, if it's real progress. Um, and it's there in, if you like, what others mirror back to you, reflect back to you in your life. Um, because if it's, say for example, if it's genuine metta, then it's not an object for you. I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I'm being really kind. You know, because there's that separation, there's suddenly subject and object. There is me as the subject who's now dispensing an object called metta or kindness. However, when that metta arises in a genuine sense and I just do something, there is no thought of I being kind. There is just an action. That is all. There is just the activity. That's one side of it. The other, the other side of it is often goals become very important when we idealize spiritual practice. 
when we make it into an ideal, when it becomes precious, I mean, in its worst possible sense. Um, often when we get the feeling of that we're doing something really, really special. And in many ways, I think that, you know, and I'm putting it in this kind of most basic fashion, all we're doing is sitting. What's special about that? You know, all we're doing is sitting here. That's all we're doing. However, there is something important about what we do. Um, and regularity is very important because if we're engaging in practice, then it ought to be regular. And it ought to be regular because if it's going to have an effect, then it's only through the regularity of doing it that it's going to have that effect. But the regularity itself, perhaps, without becoming inflexible, the habit that we were talking about, without becoming inflexible, is simply a manifestation of, in a sense, knowing that this is, in a way, I hesitate to say this because you might get the wrong end of the stick, but in a way it's good for you. It makes you feel better. It makes you feel much um, more harmonious. I'll backtrack on that a little bit because in, in elevating it in that way and saying it's important because it makes you feel better, it's good for you, really I'm no, saying no more than well, we clean our teeth and have a shower in the morning because they're good for us and we wouldn't feel very good if we didn't do them because they're good for our physical health and sometimes our kind of mental health too. But meditation itself is good for our mental health and the engaging in it is good for us and we don't have to be goal-oriented about it. You know? Really, the goal is in the practice. <laughs> if you like, if you want to talk about goals, the goal is in the doing of it. The doing of it is what is important. Um, because we're engaging in cultivation, we're not engaging in meditation, we're engaging in this cultivation practice. And it's a movement. And that movement is the movement through life. And so cultivation can become anything that we do in life. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to talk about this for those who are kind of going to be here for the morning session. I'm going to talk about this in a lot more detail. But it shouldn't become habit, <laughs> is the thing I'm saying. Because cultivation can be done anywhere. So I can move from the cultivation of sitting to the cultivation of walking, to the cultivation of washing up, to the cultivation of listening, to the cultivation of seeing, to the cultivation... I can go on. <laughs> you know, the cultivation can be done anywhere. It doesn't have to be done in that one specific way. If we see that, it ceases to become habit and it ceases to become so goal-oriented. Because all I'm doing is opening, that's all. I think I'll finish there. <laughs> Thanks. One last, any, any one last comment? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, real component. Yes. What was the very last word? I missed it. Okay, let's give you the very last word. I'll give you the very last phrase. <laughs> If I can see in the slide, that is. Um, where are we going? Yes, I think it would be a good idea. And I've also lost the page because I stuck my bookmark in somewhere else, <laughs> which doesn't help any. Talk among yourselves. No, you can't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I've got it. 133. Yeah. 
I'll read the last stanza. I think that will make it better than just reading the last line. I'll read the last stanza, which is, you know, bearing in mind what Rilke has said so far. He says, work of the eyes is done. Now go do heart work. On all the images that are imprisoned within you, for you overpowered them. But even now you don't know them. Learn in a man to look upon your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. That sounds like as good a place as any to finish, really. <laughs> okay, let's uh, have a break till five past nine, come back and do 25 minutes to finish the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.